Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. In this episode, we're going to the island of Bermuda with ocean guardian Weldon Wade. Weldon is the founder of an ocean conservation organization called Guardians of the Reef, where he's getting new divers excited to explore and protect the ocean. As part of his ocean conservation focus, he organizes initiatives to hunt invasive lionfish and remove plastic pollution from land and marine waste from the seafloor. Weldon also works full-time with the Bermuda Ocean Prosperity Program, where he's leading the education and outreach initiatives to foster the sustainable use of ocean resources for present and future generations in Bermuda. What I admire and want you, dear listener, to note is that Weldon is an ideal example of how one person can make a difference. Walden actually built his career in IT and has been a solopreneur in that industry for many years. As an adult, he had an opportunity to explore scuba diving, which furthered his love for the ocean, which eventually then led him to founding his nonprofit Guardians of the Reef. This is what I'm trying to demonstrate through our conversations on the podcast is that you don't have to have a formal training in environmental studies or sciences or related subjects to create a movement that fosters environmentally sustainable behavior, societies, attitudes, and culture. You just need to have passion, conviction, and a plan. I hope listening to Weldon will give you the boost to become a change maker in your own community. Listen on. Thanks again, Weldon, for making time for us on the Breaking Green Ceilings podcast. Really appreciate it. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with you because I feel that there are so many, I guess, experiences that you have that I can relate to, particularly how you got into environmental education and outreach, not necessarily having a traditional background in it. So we're going to be talking about that. You're also from Bermuda. I don't think I would talk to anybody from Bermuda, which is super cool. And you're an ocean explorer and a diver and a communicator. I mean, like that in of itself is just like such a well-rounded background and I'm really excited to hear more about it. So we'll start off with our first question here, which we ask all of our guests is what role has nature played in your life? Goodness. I mean, being born and raised in Bermuda, and if you don't know where Bermuda is, we're just about 650 nautical miles off the east coast of the United States. So we're like the gem of the Atlantic. We're smack in the middle of the ocean with no neighbors, surrounded by this Bermuda blue, we call it. Um, We call it our backyard. You're never more than a mile away from the beach and just commuting around, whether you're going to work or to school, you see the ocean and you see nature. We don't have waterfalls and super large nature reserves. The island is only 21 square miles. So that's about just over 12,000 acres. So it's a very small island, about 64,000 people. It's a small sort of rock that's just uh, sitting in the crater of an extinct uh, volcano. And there's no way you can get around nature. It's there, it's around you, and you have no choice one way or the other to appreciate it consciously or subconsciously. So, Yeah. Well, as you were talking about how you don't have any neighbors, that kind of scared me because I was like, you're in the middle no, of nowhere. No, no, no neighbors. <laughs> but there's also something to appreciate in that, right? You're surrounded yeah. by nature. 
And then when I think of Bermuda, I think of the Bermuda Triangle. And as kids, that just like terrified us because we'd hear all these rumors of planes, people, boats getting lost in that triangle. Is that true? It is very true. And actually on the front page of the paper last Friday, there was a report of another missing plane. So we have our Coast Guard looking for that plane right now. But at least once a week or so, we get missing persons report or missing plane or or boat. So it's it's something we we deal with on a regular. It's, It's real. Yeah. Okay, that's once a week. <laughs> I was going to hear we're like once every hundred years. Kidding. Now, the, the Bermuda Triangle <laughs> itself, it's a myth. It's a mystery. Things did happen in the past, but yeah, people yeah. fly in and out of the triangle all the time. So sorry to my fellow Bermudians out there. But yeah, it's a myth, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gullible, so... <laughs> yeah, we do have amazing rum swizzle and a very colorful history and stuff like that. And the triangle does make up a significant part of how people relate to Bermuda. It's either the Bermuda Triangle or Bermuda Onions or Bermuda Rum Swizzle or Dark and Stormies or Bermuda Shorts or Bermuda Grass. Like there's always a connection um, with Bermuda in people's minds, front of mind and pop culture and whatnot. Yeah, definitely a positive correlation, at least in Mm -hmm. my mind. So, as I mentioned earlier, you don't have that traditional background in environment studies or sciences or related academic training, which really speaks to what we're trying to do here on the podcast, which is you don't have to have a degree to care about the environment and you definitely don't need one to do something about it in terms of promoting environmental sustainability. And in fact, you mentioned earlier in our previous conversation that Your work on ocean education started as somewhat of a side hustle, but it's more of a passion rather. And you've actually built your career in IT, information technology. So tell us about how all of this came to be. Well, what's interesting in my story is I think the genesis of all of this was having a phenomenal mentor and coach early on in my life, really. So I was wrapping up high school and I didn't really do particularly well in high school, but I did have my cousin and mentor. His name was Sinclair Packwood. He did pass away not too long ago, but he helped guide me in my career in IT. And so much so that when I graduated in 1995 from uh, high school here, he helped me start my own IT consulting company which was really providing services that his business did not provide. So he was a developer doing all the coding work and I wanted to do the more. And this kind of speaks volumes to how things play out later. But I'm more into being out of the office, going around to small businesses and people's homes and fixing their problems on site. So he didn't want to do that outside stuff. But I I don't do the inside stuff. So we didn't go to the bank or anything. My uncle is a welder and he works in construction. So I ended up working in construction, getting my hands dirty, learning how to weld and and help him with his business. Saved up enough money, got a little van and then did the small business template, you know, business cards, mailing address, phone, fax back in the day, website and stuff like that. Fax. Yeah. So he helped (laughs) me to start my own business straight out of high school. So I just want to establish that baseline that I never went to college, never went to university. So Not only do I not have a degree in any ocean-related discipline, but I don't have a degree in anything. But I really did enjoy being an entrepreneur before being an entrepreneur was like a cool thing back in 1998 and a lot of you know sacrifice and all of that. But it was really to Sinclair's credit that I I went on this particular path. So I have a 20-year, 21-year career in the innovation and technology field and learned a lot, had to be extremely agile, Technology changes like 
I mean, back then it was like, you step away for six months and come back, you've missed out on a bunch of stuff. Now it seems to be every six weeks, there's evolution in the space. So it's pretty interesting how to fast forward to more modern times where it was that wanting to be outside, wanting to be interact and meet with people and to lead to where I want to expose people to the ocean and how important the ocean is and how it ties into ocean health and human health has that integration, that tight-knit integration. And yeah, I mean, that's really the beginning of Weldon as a as an IT professional transitioning into sort of communicator and ocean advocate. And there's there's a lot more to speak on, but I just want to make sure I answer your questions with best specificity. So Yeah. And we'll definitely cover that. So yeah, I'm just like so impressed by how you were an entrepreneur from like very young in your life. And I'm just remembering of when I was building my career, thinking of being an entrepreneur was just like a huge risk and something that I was afraid of. And now I am an independent consultant, so I'm building my own business and it's been one of the most fulfilling experiences I've had. But for you, it's you've been doing it for so many years and I can only imagine how, yeah, fulfilling. That's the only word I can think of right now. It has been an, a lot of hard work though to, gosh, I'm sure like very many long hours and being creative and talking to everyone about what you do. I mean, it's a struggle at the same time. Yeah, it's, I think if there are entrepreneurs out there or people that are aspiring to be entrepreneurs, one piece of advice that I'd love to share is that you can't do it all, right? It took me quite a while, a few years, and a lot of it is not having access to capital, not wanting to take out a loan. You know, you don't want to really be in significant debt to have that sort of over your head. But I think in hindsight, if I would have grabbed that capital up front and had that quote unquote burden, it probably would have pushed me to ramp up my discipline a little earlier in the journey. But in trying to be an IT professional, an accountant, a banker, a lawyer, head of marketing, head of sales, head of payroll, <laughs> trying to wear all of those hats was challenging. So it wasn't until later on in the journey where I did decide to scale up and do what I love and like double down on my strengths, recognize my weaknesses. And instead of trying to improve my weaknesses, just say, okay, well, let's put the accounting, payroll, bookkeeping to a bookkeeper. Because I, to this day, I still don't really enjoy numbers that much. But I think learning all of that at such a young age was great. I mean, I was still living at home with my parents, so my overhead was quite low. I had a little van, so that was an expense. But other than that, I didn't really have no dependencies, no kids, you know, I was just a kid, really. So I would say, yeah, if you want to start, whatever you want to start, especially with the, I mean, Bermuda got internet, guys, in 1995, right? So when I was sort of cutting my teeth as a teenager, we were just getting dial-up. Goodness, I can't even... <laughs> Just trying to reflect back to having to like everyone's like stay off the phone. I'm connecting to the internet now. Don't pick it up. I mean, to any of you guys that are younger, yeah, we had to dial in and it was slow. But today, right? Like it's easy to find resources anywhere in the world help you to do things that you don't want to do. And it doesn't like you could be good at something, you could be crushing it, but you just might not want to do that. You know, if you want to be a, a diver, you want to spend, you know, 80% of your time in the ocean, yeah, you're gonna have to sort of let go of certain things. You've only got so much time in the day to do what you want to do and so yeah, just choose that. Yeah. Delegate, delegate, delegate. Yep. Yep. Find someone you can work with and gel with and run the track, as we say here. Yeah. So one thing that I think people would be curious to know is how that bridge came about being an independent, like, or a solopreneur in IT. 
and then finding yourself working or a part of that of your time dedicated towards ocean education, but you're also a diver. So that's kind of like, I guess, the focal center point of how you got into ocean exploration and education. So what was the moment in your life that sparked that desire to be an advocate for the ocean? Well, the story goes like this. I said earlier that as Bermudians, we are surrounded by the ocean and we tend to take it for granted. That's what you've seen every day since you were born. And you kind of have this, you know, you don't necessarily have a worldview. We are a well-traveled people. I think traveling is sort of the hidden number one hobby of most Bermudians. We love to get off the rock, you guys. Like that's kind of a thing. Rock fever is a thing too, right? I describe the very small island nation and we love to just jump to the east coast of the U.S. and dabble in different things that we don't have available here. Rich or vast, right? We're a very small country with limited things, whether it's IMAX, for example, malls, stuff like that. So it's kind of a good thing. Yeah, though. <laughs> yeah it, it is. It is. There are definitely <laughs> yeah. pros and cons. But long story short, there was a time in my life where I decided to leave Bermuda and move to Toronto. So scuba diving was a bucket list item for me. So prior to 2006, I had snorkeled around with friends, I'd been to the beach countless times, but scuba diving was something that I never tried before. So, you know, I'm packing up all my things to move to downtown Toronto. And I was like, let me try scuba diving before I leave Bermuda just to get it done. And it was really that first experience being on scuba equipment with my instructor, who I, I still have a connection with to this day, and her taking me and my buddy, who I don't remember, was just a random person, taking us both down to probably 25 feet of water. And I remember being on my knees on the bottom, breathing off of this apparatus, and I'm thinking, okay, this is definitely different. Like, And then... My knees are, we were in trunks, right? It was warm. So no wetsuits. So we're kneeling in this, you know, thick gravelly type of sand. And it's like kind of hurting my knees and I scoop some up and it's Bermuda pink sand, but it's really, really coarse and really, really thick. So what's mind blowing for me was just the composition of the sand was different. And then scooping up the sand, you've got a species of fish called a pudding wife. A school of them were coming around us, trying to find all the little critters hiding in the sand. And I just remember looking around and it just being crystal clear super beautiful and a brand new fresh experience for me. And so it was in that moment, I was like, look, I need to do a bit more of this. I need to start the journey of being able to dive unencumbered by an instructor, being able to go where I want to go when I want to go there and just expand in the form of a sport or recreation of scuba diving. So that was the light bulb or light switch moment that was like, okay. So, so in other words, I didn't try scuba diving, hate it, and then never try it again, because unfortunately that happens to quite a few people if they don't have a positive experience from that, whether it's the day was really rough and bumpy on the boat, or they get nauseous from the swell or the diesel fumes, or just wasn't a positive experience. And I've learned since getting so involved in scuba that a lot of people are turned off from the sport from because of a not so great first experience. So for those of you guys out there listening that have tried it and had uh, something not too great happen by way of like just swell the boat, instructor rushing you through and not making you feel comfortable, please give it another shot because you're missing out. So I just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah, I felt like I was under the ocean with you as you were describing your experience. So ocean education, why do we need it in Bermuda? I would think that you all are surrounded by the ocean. So it's something that knowledge is just downloaded into yeah, you. But that's not fair to assume. No. It's like me assuming that if I was born in Kenya, that I know everything about the wildlife there. Yeah. <laughs> so why is it needed in Bermuda in particular? So 
it's safe to assume the opposite. And I've learned in being involved in this space that coastal communities, island nations, and the like, just because you've got persons living like a stone's throw away from the ocean, not to assume that they take full advantage of the ocean in the way you may assume. For example, just because you don't swim in the ocean or because you cannot swim doesn't mean you're not fishing or sailing. And we do have fishermen that don't know how to swim, for example. That's scary. Yeah, yeah. It's just the reality, right? (laughs) Yeah. And different cultures and different people have varying connections to the ocean, whether it's a spiritual connection where the ocean is reserved for spiritual practices and there's that kind of link with the sea or access by way of it being just expensive to to get in on or under the water. So if you need to travel a far distance to get to the ocean or you need a boat to be able to get out far to do something you want to engage in or just for scuba, you need $1,200 US of equipment to just do that or even free diving. It's that access piece that can be a bit encumbering. And then, but even beyond all that, it's just having a friend or a buddy or a member of your family that enjoys it too, because it's something, at least on the recreation and sports side, you know, you don't want to do it alone. If I encounter some wild dolphins or a whale shark or something amazing, like I want to be with somebody to share that experience with. So there are different barriers to access to the ocean, but in Bermuda growing up, we didn't have integration of ocean education in our curriculum in schools, learning how to swim and learning about the creatures in the ocean and being able to see them with your own eyes wasn't a part of the package. We have a wonderful Bermuda Aquarium Museum and Zoo that's been around for ages. So it's easy access for kids to go to the aquarium and see these creatures in their tanks. But right up until recently, there hasn't been sort of a gateway to say, okay, cool. You see these creatures that we have on display here. Here's a program that you can enroll in where you can see them wild and in their habitat. Because not everyone has a mask, fins, and snorkel to be able to see that. And, you know, swimming classes can be expensive. And I mean, the thing is, my first living memory is of my father throwing me into the ocean. And that's kind of been a rite of passage for at least young male Bermudians is that's your initiation into like learning how to swim. There's no class. It's sink or swim, your dad or your cousin or your (laughs) uncle throws you into the sea. That's how you, I just remember my life force, like being, you know, draining from my body. And again, like, I just want to come back to the fact that some kids having that experience will have a fear of the ocean and they're like, daddy, no. And then run away and never touch the water again. For me, that happened and I still swam and stuff, but I wasn't into, you know, the underwater exploration side of things. So In today's time, there's definitely more access in Bermuda for kids to get into sort of ocean science. There's at least 30 blue and green organizations here that have a focus on on something environmental or nature related, which is great. So times have changed and things have evolved and there are programs now that have opened up access to ocean exploration. But ocean education holistically isn't really instilled on all Bermudians across all demographics by default. So we don't come out knowing how to fish, knowing how to sail, knowing how to drive a boat, knowing how to dive, knowing how to hold your breath for three minutes. All that stuff comes with who you're around and your environment and what inspires you. And and as you grow, then things shift. And you know, if you've got your own money, your own time, you're an adult, you can kind of dabble into different things. Whereas as a child, you're sort of you're led more by your parents or your guardian or your cousins and whatnot. So it sounds like there are a few barriers to people gaining that knowledge around ocean sciences. 
there's the money aspect because going underwater can cost a mm-hmm. lot unless you want to snorkel. And then that's just, I don't even know the terms for this, but the little pipe. That yeah, the snorkel and whatnot. And the goggles. Yeah. Mass snorkel pants. <laughs> yeah. But if you want to go deeper, then obviously you need the scuba equipment. And you mentioned that's like on average $1,200. But you're trying to, at the same time in your work, you're trying to raise awareness and participation around ocean conservation and education. So what is your approach to doing that, given all of these barriers and consideration? So I started diving, was like being certified and really doing a deep dive, if you will, into scuba diving and ocean exploration around 2008, 2009. And once I recognized those barriers or various barriers quite early, so I started an organization back in 2011 called Bermuda Ocean Explorers. And the focus of Ocean Explorers at the time was to give certified divers and divers with the equipment they've invested in and the knowledge that they have to dive with a purpose. And by creating community-based grassroots level events that just put it to action. So while I do appreciate underwater sightseeing, which is just you and I going on a scuba dive, looking at a wreck or looking at a reef, it's great for divers to be able to do a dive. And at the conclusion of that dive, there's at least a couple invasive lionfish that have been culled from the reef. Or there's a few onion sacks of marine debris that had dropped to the bottom of the ocean that we then sort and dispose of properly. So it was a matter of creating those kind of events or facilitating and coordinating those events. And for the most part, they were free and there's food and drinks and rum swizzle and all kinds of goodies at the end of the dive. But it was no one else at the time and to this day is facilitating these grassroots action-oriented events to help galvanize and bring the community together to dive with a purpose and then do, do something dope. And to have a great story afterwards, because even if you showed up to one of these events by yourself, you're buddied up with somebody, there's a checklist, there's a medic on deck, we've got the megaphone and and afterwards there's food and music and stuff. So that was really the genesis of, of me wanting to start the organization to provide access to the ocean in this unique way. And that ties back to my transition from essentially information technology to Ocean advocacy and communication was like just finding purpose in my passion and elevating that and stepping out of IT and doing what I do now, which is I'm still leveraging the skills and habits that I learned from being a systems administrator. I'm not going to purge everything I've learned over the last you know 21 years, but certainly my focus is now on doing more ocean related stuff. So I, I hope I answered your question there. Yeah. So what I was hearing, just to make sure, is you create dope events <laughs> <laughs> that bring events. the community yeah. together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, because I'll be honest, Bermuda is the shipwreck capital of the Atlantic. For those of you that I don't was know, ask. yeah, we do have a diving industry here. There are a few local dive shops that cater to locals and tourists to take everyone out onto the reef to explore. We've got the healthiest reef in the region as well, so there's a lot to see underwater here. We don't have just one wreck. We have hundreds. We don't have a couple couple corals. We're corals everywhere. So it's a lot to see. But from a conservation and advocacy perspective, I wanted to focus on threats to the ocean. Not being a scientist, it's beyond me. But as a citizen scientist, I figured, look, there's got to be two things that we can drill down on to advocate for the ocean. And that was invasive lionfish. Bermuda does have an invasive lionfish problem. For those who don't know about the lionfish, can you give a... And we did an episode on this, but it would be helpful just to get a... A rundown on these fish. Yeah, so lionfish. Lionfish is just like any other fish, but it's covered in 18 venomous spines. And their native range, where they belong, where they're evolved over time with nature, is over in the Indo-Pacific. 
word has it that there were some saltwater aquarists and I've had a fowler tank in the past. So I've had a saltwater tank before, but someone had some lionfish in a tank in Florida. And instead of when they were tired of the lionfish, they decided to release them into the wild. And those few lionfish populated the region. And now we have an invasion over here in the the Atlantic, in the Gulf, in the Caribbean Sea, as far north as I believe Boston. And when it gets cold, they freeze. And then as far south as like, you know, past Brazil and on the Gulf and stuff. So we've got this fish in our ecosystem that they eat anything and everything they can fit into their mouths. They have no natural predators over here. And like I said a moment ago, they're covered in 18 venomous spines. So even if something does recognize this fish as a predator, which most things don't, there's that prey naivety thing kicking in. If they decide to take a little bite of this thing just to kind of see like, this thing's looking at me, it's like, it looks a little bit tasty, but it'll get pricked by one of these many, many spines. So there's a lot of things going on, not only in Bermuda, but across the invaded region where we're trying to keep their numbers in check. And around here, we do eat them to beat them. They are edible. And once you cut off the spines, you don't have to. But most of the time, once you cut off the spines, it's just like any other fish with eyes, gills, scales, and you can fillet it. And the meat is very light, white meat, flaky, high in omega-3s. And uh, it's kind of like hogfish. And you cook it up and you eat it. So I organize events, uh, not just in Bermuda, but around the region, to encourage people to eat them to beat them. And then there's the marine debris piece which I hinted on earlier, which is, you know, if you don't want to call lionfish or there aren't many around because of the time of year, you and I will grab an onion sack and find an area that has a lot of debris because most debris that enters the ocean does not float. So you need to dive down to the bottom and pick it up, put it in an onion sack. What kind of debris do you see mostly? The debris that we see mostly here is certainly long range foreign debris meaning that a lot of the waste that enters the ocean isn't local. We're in the North Atlantic Gyre, the Sargasso Sea area, and the debris that floats will swirl around, and once it accumulates enough biomass, it will sink. But a lot of the stuff, SAPNA, is from the industrialized fishing industry, whether that's its rope. Rope is super popular. Rope, oil and gas canisters, industrial fishing, like these like plastic box things that they would put the fish in. So yeah, a lot of stuff comes from fishing, unfortunately. And then a lot of it is long range. It's stuff that you can easily identify that it's not local, whether it's a a funny bottle with some hieroglyphic type writing on it. So I've done brand audits before just to kind of try to help identify, like, is it local? Is it not? A lot of microplastic that we can't identify. But around here, we subscribe to a waste to energy program. So we recycle tin, aluminum, and glass, but we do not recycled plastic, we actually burn that. And that feeds into our electrical grid. So, and that's a whole nother discussion because we've learned in recent times that burning plastic isn't the best with dioxins and whatnot. But we used to landfill. We don't do much of that anymore, but we still have a landfill. So we can't burn a dishwasher. We do have a landfill solution, if you will, near our airport. So cars and dishwashers and stuff like that, that goes into our landfill. But for residential waste, we will burn that stuff. Interesting. So what's the most amount of marine debris you've gathered in one event? One event? The weight. I mean, in terms of weight, and that's really tricky because if we get a bunch of glass bottles doing a dive, it can be anywhere from you know yeah. half a ton to a ton. Mm. The One of the most exciting events we hosted was a, a 10-week series. So every Sunday morning for 10 weeks in a row consecutively, a small group of us would meet at different spots around the island. And I think we got like 10 tons of debris. It was crazy, but it was wonderful. Like once we had a rhythm, 
We would use Facebook to schedule all these events, but people knew, okay, Sunday, Rhea Gibbons and Weldon Wade were co-hosting a cleanup series and we had the dates and you just look two or three days out to see where it was going to be. Sometimes we'd have to go back to places because we'd run out of time, but we worked with the Parks Department and Keep Bermuda Beautiful organization to help get the word out and then help get the debris where it had to be. So sorting was a big part of that. And then reporting that data into Ocean Conservancy or Project Aware was important as well. So it really depends. A lot of it is how many people come out, how long the event runs for, whether it's a day, half a day, or like a 10-week series, and where we decide to clean up. Because sometimes we get to spots and there's tons of glass bottles and stuff like that. So yeah, anywhere from half a ton to 10, depends. Gosh. Well, thank God for people like you. And my team and my wonderful volunteers because can't do it alone, right? Exactly. You just can't do it alone, which takes me to my next question, which is, do you have to be a diver to be a part of your events, your initiative? No, not at all. There's a role for everyone to play, even if you touch water and you burst into smoke. We always need someone to scribe, especially if we're reporting our data. Someone has to scribe every bottle and every piece. So scribes are important. Media is important. You know, it's wonderful when you do an event, you've got good photographs. You don't have somebody trying to do it all. So we always love to have a scribe and a media person that's going around taking photographs, recording video, and maybe doing some very short, small interviews. It's great to just get all that stuff live on the fly. And then, yeah, if you don't scuba, like a lot of the work we do is right on the shoreline, right off the beach. So you're not in deep water. You're in anywhere from, I don't know, zero to 10 feet of water. So you can easily snorkel that stuff. And scuba diving, as much as I love scuba diving, most of my diving these days is not on scuba. You know, it's just tanks and weights and regulators and extra stuff. So it's way easier to just facilitate snorkeling and free diving. And you get more people out. It's easier to coordinate and no one's lugging 30 pound tanks around with a bunch of weights and stuff. Yeah. Free diving is scary to me. How long did it take you to reach a point where you can hold your breath for three minutes? Can you hold it for more? Oh, yeah. For the freedivers out there, yeah, my static was like three minutes, 45 seconds when I was training for my level one. So shout out to Hanley Prinsloo and Peter Marshall out of South Africa who run the I Am Water program. So when I hinted earlier in the broadcast about entities coming online in Bermuda to facilitate ocean education, especially with the kids, Hanley and Peter were paramount in bringing the Kids on the Reef program to Bermuda. So they've integrated this particular program into schools. And it's wonderful because you'll have kids that had never swam enroll. And in a couple of days, they're doing breath hold and free diving down to 25, 30 feet. Wow. So I'm a coach as part of that program. And coaching meant learning how to free dive properly, doing your stretching, proper breathe ups, proper finning, gear, yoga, chia seeds in your coconut water. It's just a, like, what do chia seeds do? Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a thing. Shout out to my freediving community out there. But but yeah, with the training and the right fitness and the right techniques and kit, yeah, dynamic apnea, static apnea. And it's not all about depth either. But three-minute breath hold is pretty common once you once you get going into the sport. And it's blowing up around the world. Like freediving is now, yeah, it's like, you're not a freediver? Oh, get out of here. <laughs> it's just so much more accessible than scuba, but it still yeah. has its layer of like, bit of a learning curve. You don't just get all the gear and jump in and dive to 100 feet. So yeah, it's wonderful. It's actually wonderful. But it was um, Peter Marshall was my instructor for my level one. And yeah, I've just been freediving since then. But I want to tell you and your audience that freediving as a sport in Bermuda is quite new. But spearfishing 
is not. So around here, you cannot harvest from the sea on scuba. If you want to harvest lobsters recreationally, if you want to spear fish recreationally, you have to do that on breath hold. So we actually have hundreds of spear fishermen in Bermuda and like lobster divers or going lobstering. But these guys are harvesting. It's not taking a float line out and doing drills on a line. Around here, it's like, go out on the water, do whatever you want, but bring home dinner. So I don't want people to think that Bermudians don't free dive. We do. We just free dive for food and we call it what it is, which will be, you know, spearfishing. So it's very common here, but there are strict rules and regulations around what you can catch, when you can catch it, how many you can catch. So there's bag limits, catch limits, size limits, all that stuff. So, and then you got to be able to hold your breath. So if you want to come lobstering with us, so, and there's license permits involved too. So. So yeah, it's, it's all these little nuances with access and with the different dive disciplines. So you can't be on scuba and hunt lobsters. It's illegal. Yeah, because it would be easier, right? And you want to um, ensure yeah. like the sustainability yeah. of the lobster populations. Yeah. And there's also this element of like hunting responsibly for your food. So I'm totally for that. Yeah, it's funny. Lionfish are an exception to that rule, but for oh, yeah. everything else, you know, when I see someone on scuba with a spear gun, which are illegal here too. So if you're mm. on scuba, you have a spear gun and you're shooting hogfish or grouper, it's kind of like, okay, really? It just seems, uh, for me at least, so easy. You're not on breath hold. You could be out of shape. You got the gun, which I've never used. I've never used a spear gun before ever. It's all pole spear. You just have a band on the end of a metal pole and that's your mechanism for shooting the fish. And with lobstering, we have to noose them with a little, you know, fiberglass or metal pole with a noose on the end. So yeah, you come Bermuda, you do have to know what you're doing in order to harvest from the sea. Lionfish, though, you can be on scuba and spear them with a paralyzer tip spear. Yeah, because they're invasive, so. Yeah, so we relax the, the rules for that. Yeah, that makes sense. So going back to your initiatives, your target audience is the community. It's mostly just anyone who's... 18 and above, but you also do youth education through that one diving program, Kids on a Reef? Kids on the Reef, yeah. And then do you go to schools and do educational programs as well, or is that more limited? It's a little bit more limited, but I am invited to speak in primary and high schools quite often to just share my message. And I think, Sabna, what's important to recognize is that in most cases, when someone gets in front of kids to speak on ocean advocacy and ocean health and and diving and exploration and swimming with sharks, whales, dolphins, and turtles and stuff. It's usually someone that doesn't look like me. They are typically not from Bermuda. They're typically older and they're not black. That's just how it's been forever. And that's the expectation. If someone was this, you know, I'm behind a curtain and they introduce me and read all the stuff I've done, I don't think people even to this day would expect me to come from behind the curtain to be, you know, the guy that has done all these things and continues to do these things. So that's what's been the most captivating, especially, you know, going back to my old primary school and I introduce myself. I run an intro video that showcases all this diving stuff and the kids are like, I can do that too. (laughs) Yeah, they're like, wow. And then I tell them, like, listen, I went to this primary school as well. I grew up out Wellington back road. My house is just around the corner. I walk the same holes you guys walk. And I say, you know, the school still smells the same. And I sat on the floor just like you guys are. And if I can do it, you can do it. And it's that connection that it's hard to really put it to words. It is an emotional experience just because 
the kids aren't used to seeing that. They're not used to seeing a Bermudian that does what I do. That's what drives me to do a lot of what I do is to inspire the next generation, present and future generations to do what I do. You know, I don't think it's something reserved. It's a privilege that's reserved for other people. You know, it doesn't take much to get into it. Yeah. It takes build action though, especially if your social group doesn't do it or they feel some way about it when you're going against the grain. It does take a, which, which is what I had to deal with, you know, a bold leap of faith, action, and just staying to the wicked, we would say here. Yeah. Staying to the wicked. Cricket term there. Oh, the wicked. Wicked. Okay. Yeah, yes. Wicked. I heard wicked. I was like, oh, I know the wicked. <laughs> <laughs> Growing up in Kenya, where some of us are into cricket as well. But of course, because I'm Indian, right? cricket is all we do. Yeah, shout out to my uncle Cleavy, who was captain for the St. George's cricket team back in the day. We have a big holiday every year. It's a celebration of emancipation of slaves. It's a two-day holiday on the back of a weekend, so it's a four-day holiday. And there's a two-day cricket match between the west end of the island and the east end of the island. And so, yeah, we do take cricket and football. It's soccer, but we call it football. We take cricket and football very seriously here in Bermuda. So Yeah, I do not doubt that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's a wonderful holiday. It's a lot going on. And, you know, cup match is a big deal. So if you guys ever want to come to Bermuda, try to come around cup match. It was canceled last year for the first time for obvious reasons. Yeah. And it was just as a Bermudian, like, you just kind of like, can you at least just like have the match played, but not have the spectators? And it was like, no. no. Like, so the captains were like, it's all or nothing. And I think and we did agree as a community, like, okay. We lift regulations of gambling because gambling is really illegal here. But we have a game called Crown and Anchor that we play. And so that becomes legal for these two days. So it's, it's, <laughs> like, there's rum spilling everywhere. People <laughs> taking their boats out. There's parties. There's a non-mariners race. There's music and vibes. So oh, that sounds it's, it's so nice. Good. It is good. That's cool. One thing that you mentioned, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about it is you mentioned that Bermuda has the largest number of shipwrecks. It reminded me of one of our other guests, Justin Donovan. He does research on shipwrecks, but he looks at the environmental factors that influence the Atlantic slave trade. And so he works primarily in the Caribbean. So it's interesting. I'm sure he's worked there, but you know that episode was focusing on with the nature of the winds at that time and the ocean floor and how that influenced like the rum trade, the rum runners and stuff like that. So tell us briefly about the history of the shipwrecks and the slave trade in Bermuda. Traditionally, the shipwreck space in Bermuda has not had a focus on the transatlantic slave trade, in my opinion. We do have a wonderful museum up in the, uh, the west end of the island that does have a lot of things on display that do speak to the first shipwrecks, the first you know, colonization, because most of the shipwrecks that did wreck early on, today they have super underwater, archaeologically significant things. Most of them like artifacts, but as a diver and as a Bermudian, and this is sort of on a high level, we tend not to focus on the people that were on board. It was really the name of the ship, the cargo, where their port of call was and, you know, where did they strike the reef and what the story was there. But the, the narrative has tended to overlook the human element. Who was on the boat, you know, was more than the captain, the captain and, uh, and his crew. Like most of the time they had cargo and that's not a, a ha-ha funny laugh. It's an uncomfortable topic to speak of even to this day because humans were cargo. 
on these ships as part of the transatlantic slave trade. So shout out to the Enslaved documentary that was just shot recently. They did a lot of filming in the Bahamas. I got friends in the diving space that were involved with Samuel L. Jackson and his production team uh, shooting that documentary. And it did open up a lot of my eyes like, okay. So things are in motion that I'm a part of right now to bring more of a focus on Bermuda and her shipwrecks vis-a-vis the transatlantic slave trade. And it's just like, because I mentioned earlier, Bermuda sits inside of an extinct volcano. So the island itself sits there. And so we've got this sort of barrier reef, the mouth of the crater around Bermuda. So while you're sailing back in the day, you see land, you want to go full steam ahead towards Bermuda. We got the name the Isle of Devils for a reason, because once you got close back in the day, you'd hear all kinds of weird noises. And that was sort of the hogs and and the cowhouse, the birds and the different creatures that were on this uninhabited island. What happened was people would sail past, and if they were you sail past safely, avoiding all the jagged boiler reefs, the stories they'd release animals close to shore and say, yeah, yeah, if we have to come back here, we want to make sure that there's food on land to sustain us. So they'd release hogs and different things on the island so that they would reproduce over time. Nature would take its course. And then if you had to come back, they're like, yeah, there's definitely some vittles over there we can partake in. And But it was, it was all those animals making all these noises where sailors would come behind those guys I'm like, yeah, this thing's not like devils fighting and whatnot. But but yeah, we have got hundreds of shipwrecks that line Bermuda's reef or barrier reef or rim. And yeah, I mean, certainly there was human cargo, not on all of them, but I'm sure on, on many of them. But that tends not to be part of the narrative. If you were to come scuba diving and you're diving a wreck that's very popular, the story is really about, you know, it was carrying morphine nodules and different grinding wheels and different things like that. But we tend not to speak about the slave side of things Hmm. in that aspect. Now, we don't overlook the fact that I just mentioned Emancipation Day, right? So we did have slavery in Bermuda. And yeah, that's probably a whole other podcast, actually. Yeah, I took us down a rabbit hole. Sorry, it was just like you mentioned shipwrecks and the Emancipation Day. And I was like, oh, I want to ask him about this. But yeah, no doubt. There was a National Geographic and Smithsonian did some work in that space, the transatlantic slave trade shipwreck space. And it was just, it was pretty wild. So I would encourage, you know, if you listening or watching want to learn more about that, there are some well-produced documentaries out there featuring some wonderful people that do speak on that specifically. Yeah, for me, it was really eye-opening when we had Justin because I was aware of it, but the amount of detail, because he's an archaeologist and he does also diving with a purpose. Part of his research is assessing the shipwrecks and understanding who were the people on these ships. And so the detail and the history, I it was just really eye-opening. And I also learned something new about the shipwrecks in Bermuda and kind of like the history behind it. So thank you for sharing. You're welcome. You're welcome. So we'll go back to the diving with a purpose side of things. I had one last question to ask you before we go into our lightning round is, as a diver, what's been one of your most memorable experience? And I'm sure you get this question a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly the story that comes front of mind whenever anyone asks me this question, because I get asked a lot, you know, what's your most memorable experience? How deep do you dive? What's your deepest dive? But my most memorable experience has been on the surface of the ocean. And that was being out on a photo shoot and getting a phone call that a fisherman had discovered a floating sperm whale about 12 nautical miles off Bermuda Southwest. And I was fortunate to be in a cohort of people that had the ability to jump in a boat and travel that distance to get to this floating whale. Shout out to everybody involved with that. It was amazing. It was Mother's Day 2015. 
So we get to the floating dead sperm whale, and sharks are eating this dead floating sperm whale. There were tigers, Galapagos, and a blue shark. And the cohort I was with, shout out to Chris Burville and Choya Ming. But yeah, it was a let's suit up and jump in. So we suited up and jumped into the ocean. I've got video, which most of it hasn't seen the light of day for various reasons. But we jumped into the ocean and watched the sharks eat the whale. And we, were, we had an in-water experience for about 20 minutes. And then we ended up tying the boat to the whale to get some up-close shots of the tigers eating the whale. And then uh, marine biologist Choya Ming jumped on the floating whale and got footage from that perspective. And then we got back to shore as quickly as we could to uh, enjoy our Mother's Day, various Mother's Day celebrations. But, you know, I think that was like a four or five hour experience. And yeah, and this was, I mean, yeah, Instagram was around at the time, but the whole swimming with sharks thing wasn't much of a thing. But yeah, it's funny, like the tigers backed away and kind of sussed us out for a while. The blue shark and his pilot fish were kind of swimming close and going around. And then as the tigers got comfortable with us being in the water, they would start to eat and stuff like that. Then once they got really comfortable and one of them did bump the dome port of the, one of the photographer's cameras, I was like, yeah, that's it. Let's get out. Like they're kind of getting a little bit too comfortable, too close. They're like, maybe and, we uh, can eat you too. No, that's yeah, they're it, like, so. you kind of smell kind of nice. <laughs> Must that jump all good here? Like you, yeah. kinda, smelling a little bit yummy. So we did get out of the water at that time. So I am building out my YouTube channel. And very soon, I'm hoping to have all the video I collected. I had GoPro, I had phones, I had all kinds of, but get all the content together and produce something really dope because everything's still fragmented and in pieces. But we were in extremely deep water, extremely far from shore. The sharks were eating the whale and we had the opportunity to spend hours out there with that. So that's my most memorable. But then there's wild dolphins and swimming with humpback whales. We have a migration happening right now. So for those that have the, the privilege to know the right people and understand how it all works and having access to a boat and crew and whatnot, yeah, you can, when the conditions are right, you're jumping in the water and swimming with migrating humpback whales, which is a life-changing experience. There's usually dolphins with the whales too. So yeah, it's like 40 ton whale kind of looking at That's you. So you feel, cool. yeah, yeah, it's super life-changing. So in terms of the most memorable, yeah, it's certainly swimming with those, the big pelagics and then the whole dead sperm whale. Man. That's something. It makes me want to get into diving. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> On my bucket list, though, is to see a whale in real life, of course, with sustainable practices. But I think I just, yeah, just want to like experience like, the massiveness of those animals. It's just on TV, it looks amazing. And like, you know, the oh, social wow. media videos. But I just love to see it like up close if I could. And even swimming with them, that would be even like cooler, way cooler. Okay, we are going into our lightning round. So mm-hmm. these are a series of four questions. Answer the first thing that comes to your mind. Are you ready? Okay, and this is just wide open. Let's go. Yeah, okay. <laughs> first question. What have you read, heard, or watched that has influenced you the most? I would say a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And also the four hour work week and start something that matters. Those are three books that I, I lean on all the time that influence me the most. Those are good books for sure. What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Journaling, just keeping a record of everything. Yeah. It really helps you sort of figure things out. Yeah. So, yeah, recording your time as an independent contractor, it's important to do that. 
billable hours and whatnot. Yeah. But beyond that would be journaling as well. So, yeah. Do you do that at the end of the day? Do you do it every day or how does that work? I typically journal at the end of the day, chronicling my day and mornings while I'm having my coffee. That's when I'll chart out three things that I really want to crush for that day. Yeah. But there's an overarching goals and objectives that yeah. go with that as well. So it's a balance of personal and business, Yeah. but everything ties together. If I'm going to a meeting, yeah, I might have to stop and pick up milk and eggs and water for my grandma. It's all tied in. I can't say, yeah. I can't take you that stuff because I got to go to work. It's all integrated. We're all the same person. Yeah. I've been wanting to journal since I started as an independent. That's why I was asking. And I feel like those experiences that I don't want to forget and I want to record them, document them so that I can look back on it one day. So that's a good practice. It's a way to also keep yourself accountable, Sapna. But I also have a mentor that helps me, like helps guide. And that's the space I'm in right now on the ocean side of things is I'm more of a, a mentor and coach because I'm not an instructor. But I think having a life mentor or life coach, someone who has done what you want to do already, having that guide is very valuable. So, so yeah, journaling and, and having a mentor is valuable. Yeah. What's the best piece of advice you've received? <laughs> life is short. Whatever you want to do, do it now. Yeah. You can't hear that enough, really. No. I was involved in a boat fire the day before Father's Day last year, and Oof. that really set things into perspective. Oof. And, you know, that was something that small things become big things. But to be honest, you can wake up one day and your life can change in a heartbeat. So, yeah, you guys, like, do it now. You want to swim in whales? Like, take a trip to Dominica, swim with the sperm whales, you know, go to Tonga, swim with the humpbacks, like, like, get it done. Because, you know, wake up one day and it's like, wow, you know. You never know. Yeah, yeah do it now. Yeah. What is your superpower? I love bringing people together. I just like being in front of people, public speaking, podcasting, being on TV, radio, facilitating events. Like I'm definitely that guy that for whatever reason is comfortable with all that stuff. So that would definitely be my superpower. And that's kind of what got me the contract I have now with the Bermuda Ocean Prosperity Program as communications coordinator, because I'm able to galvanize and pull people together from different sectors of the community and say, look, let's unite for common good and let's do something fun and dope and do something purposeful and so yeah i think that's definitely if that was to be stripped which it was the pandemic did prevent me from doing that public engagement and stakeholder outreach and it was like oh my god like i can't do all these wonderful things that i have planned but around here we're managing the pandemic quite well and in short order we'll be able to all those wonderful social things that i love doing the most yeah just quickly tell us more about your position as the communications coordinator with the Bermuda, I forget the name that you mentioned, of the organization. Yeah, so the Bermuda Ocean Prosperity Program is a partnership between the government of Bermuda, the Bermuda Institute of Ocean Sciences that are here, and the Waite Institute, which was founded by Ted Waite of the Waite Foundation. So the whole thing is to ultimately protect 20% of Bermuda's deep ocean or within our exclusive economic zone. So we're going, doing a lot of stakeholder engagement, doing a lot of public outreach, but ultimately we would protect 20% of our ocean space that surrounds us. That's really the gist. So we're really, really busy in that space right now. So very soon we'll have our MPA and do our marine spatial plan and our, set up our marine protected area all goes well. We'll achieve our goals. All signs point to it. So yeah. It's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. Got that, the Bob thing, which is wonderful. And then 
Guardians of the Reef, which is the name of my NGO now, because we've expanded regionally. So Bermuda Ocean Explorers that I mentioned way earlier in the broadcast, we did change the name. So there's Guardians of the Reef and then all the other little bits and pieces that I do to keep myself busy around here. But it's all on WeldonWade.com and I'm all over social and very easy to find. Awesome. So that answered our questions of how can we follow you on your journey? Yep. Instagram, <laughs> WeldonWade, WeldonWade.com, Facebook, WeldonWade. You happen to land in Bermuda and you just say to the taxi driver, hey, um, I'm heard to see Weldon. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, his mom works over there and she'll tell you how to get to the house and you want to stop by Switzerland real quick, get some Swizzle. So, yeah, it's a vibe. We're a very small, tight-knit yeah. community. It's a vibe down here. That's so nice. Yeah, I love the work I'm doing with Bob and it was the work with Guardians of the Reef and bringing together the community and the way that I communicate got me this position in the first place, so. It's really been a blessing. Yeah, I pray to be where I'm at right now, you guys. So I don't complain about it. And I would encourage you, like, just you have a dream, just make a plan and run full steam towards it. And, you know, yeah, around here, like, I just learned that most of the time we tend to get in our own way. So once you get out of your own way and take that leap of faith, you can achieve anything, honestly. Yeah, that's so true. A lot of the times we are in our own way, we doubt ourselves and question the validity of our passions or what we want to achieve. So don't do that to yourself. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this brings us to the end of our conversation for now. Oh, man. We will continue to follow you on Instagram and look for those cool lionfish images and can't wait to see what you do with the Bermuda Ocean Prosperity. And it's a really cool name of a program too. Yeah. So yeah, we can't wait to see what you do with that. And thank you for everything that you do to protect our oceans and to basically help educate, but also just empower people of your community to want to protect their gem at the end of the day. So it's a lot of work. Yeah. You know, shout out to your listenership and to your viewership. And I love everything you're doing on your platform keep at it it's a privilege and an honor to just have your time and be in your space so thank you so much for this opportunity and i can't wait to see everything you have to offer in the future i think you know the future is really really bright so I'm gonna, let's crush it let's keep at it oh thank you thank you that <laughs> just like made me very happy so yes <laughs> i appreciate it so much some days i'm just like oh what is it all for but these conversations really remind me of yes This is what it is for. Hey, all. Thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.